The first reading is taken from Psalms 9, verses 7 to 10. The Lord regains forever. He will establish his throne for his judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the people with justice. The Lord is regains for his oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you. For the Lord will never be forsaken those who will seek you. This is the word of the Lord. I speak to God. And our second reading is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to chapter 11, verse 3. And that's found on page 851. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall under the to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. If he sinks, if he shrinks, but, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. This is the word of the Lord. I hope you're not too disappointed. We uh, aren't reading up to verse 23 at the moment. That's called a typo. Uh, We are just going up to uh, verse 3. I'm going to put this microphone on. Enough time for... Beautiful. Thanks, Russ. Uh, Let me add my welcome, if you're new and visiting, and let me um, add my thanks that uh, you listened to Andrew's request and you came forward. It's kind of strange, actually. We never have people this close to the front. Um, I I feel like I almost had to stand back there. Um, But it is great to have uh, you amongst us. We're going to be looking at Hebrews uh, again this morning. 
looking a little bit more closely at God's Word there, I'd encourage you to have it open in front of you uh, so you can check out uh, what's being said. Uh, but of course what we're doing is, is more than an exercise in growth and intellect. We want God to speak to us. We want him to address us and change our lives. Uh, when uh, the psalmist in Psalm 19 uh, reflected on the Word of God, he speaks of the wonder uh, of creation and how all of creation came to be because of the Word of God. And then he kind of moves in to talk about how delightful God's Word is uh, and the great joy it is and how it revives his soul. And he finishes uh, with kind of a, a, a reflection of the power of the Word of God. Uh, Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And then I'll be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's his reflection when he comes before the word. Why don't we pray uh, that that might be the truth for us. Uh, Lord and Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that now as we spend time looking at it, that you might speak to us clearly and plainly. Uh, Father, show to us um, our errors. Reveal to us our hidden faults and forgive us. Uh, Make make also those willful sins uh, known to us that we might want to turn away from them. Uh, Father, we pray that, the, that in hearing your word, in having the spirit applied to our lives, that the words of our mouths, the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. We thank you and praise you that you are uh, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Ephraim and Amanda Stoltzfus, it's a great name, isn't it? Uh, they are still Amish. There's a photo of them up there. Uh, to look at them, you wouldn't know. But uh, their own community has actually excommunicated them and their four young children. Uh, Ephraim angered his bishops in the old Amish order by asking questions. Uh, He questioned whether the the tight regulations uh, with laws that even covered the the width of a a headband around your hat uh, had... uh, He wondered whether rules like that was actually undermining true worship of God. Uh, He also angered them because... He was reading a Bible in English, not the the old German one that was brought out by the forebears many hundreds of years before. As an American, English is his native language, and he wanted to just read the Word. Even more, he he was actually holding informal Bible studies and prayer meetings at his house where people could come and read the Word. Uh, In this, the Stoltzfusses had broken with tradition and culture. And so excommunication meant they were no longer welcome at the church they grew up in. They are no longer welcome, or more to the point, their, their extended families were no longer allowed to receive them into their homes. Uh, they weren't allowed to accept presents from them. So Ephraim told of how, um, as a, a family, he and the kids had made some ice cream. Knowing his parents would love it too, he sent some over to their place, but they, they weren't allowed to have it. They weren't even allowed to touch it. You know, as part of uh, you know, a very separated culture, Uh, What they'd done in excommunication, they had lost their entire support network. Uh, He explained how it actually would have been easier on his family if they just died than them living but being excommunicated. Uh, Ephraim himself was determined to see the benefits. So as a birthday treat, um, here's an idea for people, he took his seven-year-old son into town to hand out gospel tracts on the back of these million-dollar bills. Uh, explaining to anyone who'd listen that the Word of God was worth more than all the dollars in the world. Uh, something that Ephraim and Amanda had actually put into practice in their life. Uh, he and his wife had, had given away all their savings, their life savings, to other people because of their needs. 
that kind of evangelism was uh, was banned as proud or arrogant in the, the old Amish order and by those bishops. Uh, then they had the pain of isolation. They, they weren't sure of uh, what church to join after they'd been excommunicated. Uh, they still longed to be part of Amish culture. They didn't actually want to turn their back on family and friends, so they, they kept trying to turn up to church. Uh, and uh, the pain, I suppose, was magnified when their five-year-old daughter was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, they didn't have money, the, the money to cover the kind of costs that it is in the US to access the medical system. Uh, rather than, though, crushing their resolve to stick with their convictions uh, ahead of their culture, they, they were solidified. I want to ask you, how do you make sense of their actions? You know, were, were they sensible? You know, uh, leaving a, a you know, cult-like community, I suppose, with arbitrary, that are, arbitrary rules that are really harsh. Were they crazy? You know, they gave up their entire network of family and friends. They, they left their support base um, as their daughter was suffering, um, all because they weren't willing to toe the line over rules about hats and... Uh, and, you know, they wanted to keep reading the Bible and pray, you know, rather than be just a little bit shrewd and pragmatic. I suspect the writer of the Hebrews would make sense of these people as faith. People of faith. Uh, Ephraim and Amanda uh, were merely two more in a really long line of people who testified to the goodness of what is to come, even when it meant costly decisions here and now. Uh, the Stoltzfusses are people who didn't in the language of Hebrews there, the end where, where Jane read from uh, verse 38 and 9, they are people who didn't shrink back to face destruction, but they have faith. They have faith and are saved. My hope this morning is that we will leave with, with something like that. We will leave as people, men and women of faith. Now, we're going to deal with a, a longer section that we, longer than even what was read uh, and that section of Hebrews doesn't so much define the essence of faith, it just describes what a faithful life looks like. It's a description rather than definition. And so, because we're doing a lot, if you remember nothing else, hang on to these eight words. I tried these eight words with Andrew this morning. He was, he was stuck on four. Um, here's eight. Have faith, copy Christ, scorn shame for joy. Eight words. Have faith, copy Christ, scorn shame for joy. So Hebrews is written to, to remind the people there uh, of the benefits of Christ because the first readers seem to have lost something of that confidence. And so as a loving pastor, he, he encourages them to have faith. Uh, first of all, by the reality of vengeance. So 10, 26 to 31, he, he warns that anyone who turns their back on Christ abandons the only way that they can find acceptance with God and therefore only furious, fiery judgment awaits such people in verse 27. You, know, you don't have to pause for a moment and recall just one of those people you know who no longer claim to follow Christ but used to to realize just how chilling verse 31 is. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Have faith because vengeance is a reality. Uh, his second reason is gentler. You know, he reminds them how far they've come. So in in 32 to 39, uh, he goes over what they've already been through. In verse 39, they're not the kind of, he has confidence, they are not the kind of people who shrink back to destruction. They're the kind of people who are going to persevere to life. 
Uh, and he, know, he says that with confidence because he, he remembers that they've already struggled and they've already suffered. They've already been abused for Christ. Uh, they've been willing to associate with those who've been imprisoned for Christ. You know, have faith, he says, because the Christian life is, is an Ironman triathlon. It's not a sprint. It's not about getting out of the blocks fast. It's about pushing through one pain barrier after the other. Speaking as one who's never done one of those triathlons. You know, have faith. Have faith because you've come so far. But his final reason is the one that, that kind of dominates where we left off our reading through to the start of chapter 12. You know, have faith because of the example of the faithful who look to heaven. The example of others, those faithful who look to heaven. So let's pick it up again in 10.39. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to read all of chapter 11. You know, set your mind at ease. At 10.39, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are those who believe. That is, we are those who have faith and we are saved. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for. It's certain of what we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. And then he gives this really long list of faithful ancients and how they lived out faith in their experience, looking for something greater. And then he finishes his argument at the end of the chapter. Turn over the page if you've got it open. Uh, 11.39. These, these long list of faithful people, were commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What what is it to to not shrink back uh, into destruction but to have faith? Well, it's about copying Christ. It's about scorning shame for joy. He gives us a description of faith. It's, It's a recommendation of the kind of trust that will bring eternal life. So faith celebrates here and now what will be a future blessing. So the excitement of heaven, I don't know how often you reflect of heaven, on heaven, um, do it more if you don't do it much. You know, the, the healing uh, and the comfort and the refreshment of restored relationships with those who've already gone before you. Uh, you know, the immediate proximity to God in all his glory and being allowed to come close. This is the wonder of heaven. It's a great hope. You know, we long for for restoration. We long for experiencing pure joy uh, rather than the kind of experience we have which is joy mixed with pain. You know, it's why when we read the Gospels and we read Acts and we, we hear of healings we, and, and we wonder, you know, why not let now, Lord? Why not now? Because we want heaven, don't we? But here and now, we don't see it. And so what do we do? We look to the lives of the faithful for our confidence, for our encouragement. Hebrews logic is that that, that, that faith delights in what will come and as people do that, that actually provides grounds for others to base their hope. That's the uh, the certainty of unseen things in the future that I can actually look at. You know, I can look at people. I can't see the greats of the Old Testament like uh, like Moses and Abraham that he refers to, but I can see Ephraim and Amanda Stoltzfus. 
or at least I saw them on a documentary on Compass a few weeks ago. Uh, yeah, I see people acting on unseen promises and it gives me certainty and confidence about its existence. You know, they are witnesses in the start of chapter 12. Don't misunderstand it. They're not witnesses of us. They're not sitting around in a stadium looking down and going, oh, look at how Andrew's going. No, no, no. They are witnesses in the sense of a courtroom, uh, you know, ones who testify. And so they are witnesses. They give testimony to the greatness of what will come by the way that they live now. And, of course, the greatest example is Christ. Uh, he lived that kind of faith, didn't he? He scorned shame for joy. So Jesus is the, the author and perfecter of our faith in the start of chapter 12. That is, he's the exemplar. He is the champion of faith. When we want to look to understand what faith is like, we look to him because he perfected the craft. He showed us how it was done. So he endured the cross because he was certain of joy at the Father's side that was to come. So do you notice in, in uh, verse 2, 12-2, we're, we're pointed by the writer to look at the cross, not to see the redemption it achieved, and not to see how the cross is a great demonstration of love. It is those things. You know, we are saved and ransomed by the cross. We, it is a great demonstration of love. But what he wants us to see is the endurance Jesus had. That's what he wants us to grasp onto. The cross was a shameful way to die. It went hand in hand with, with humiliation and with degradation and rejection. Now, the cross for Christ was an experience where um, evil opponents actually triumphed unchallenged. Yeah, and that's not even to mention the, the outpouring of wrath uh, he received for the sins of humanity. But he thought nothing of the shame. He scorned it because he knew the joy that was to come. And for those who were first reading this and and hearing this letter, people who'd already endured suffering and persecution because they held on to the name of Jesus, they they were to look to Christ for comfort and encouragement and a model to copy. And if we're to be people who are of faith, people who don't shrink back, Christ's model is our mantra. Have faith, copy Christ, Scorn, shame for joy. Drawing on him, drawing on Christ, drawing on the example of others in chapter 11, there are two ways for us to be people of faith this morning. One is you get rid of all the sin that entangles. And secondly, obey without expecting a payoff. So that first one, get get rid of sin that entangles. Look again at 12.1. Therefore... Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Uh, the image there is of an, an athlete, um, <laughs> possibly in finer condition than, uh, than Stu and Russ uh, that we saw in the kids' talk. Maybe not. Uh, you know, all the time we know athletes, they're looking for the edge, aren't they? They're looking to to lose whatever it is that's holding them back, that, that point one or two of a second. Uh, the whole controversy about swimming suits at the moment in uh, the Dominate sports papers just shows how desperate people are to just do everything, get rid of whatever it is that was blocking them to achieve the goal. And if we are serious about the hope of heaven and the glory and the joy that awaits us there, then we get rid of the sin that clings. And perhaps our problem is we, we just don't realise how clingy and how damaging and how hindering uh, that can be. Even, even we who live under the new covenant, 
even we who know that Christ has ransomed us to turn away from evil to live for good, even we who have the Spirit working within us internally to renew us into the image of God, even then sin is deep set. Uh, the 39 articles speak of how everyone's natural state, you and me included, uh, is this, very far gone from original righteousness and is inclined to evil. So the flesh lusteth always contrary to the spirit. Uh, here's the key bit for us though. And this infection of nature doth remain, yea, in them that are regenerated. Modern language, uh, the infection of sin is still there even though we're Christians. It's clingy like an infection. Uh, a friend uh, has amoebic dysentery. Now, I'm not a medic, and so those who are medically inclined can correct me later. But my simple understanding is that um, having this infection means it, it's always there. Uh, even when the symptoms aren't obvious, it's there underneath waiting to flare up. Just like the sin that so easily entangles. You know, we need to keep watching our actions and, and watching our motives, and we need to, to, to analyse them and rub them up against... Uh, the word of God and his you know, golden rule, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, to love our neighbours as ourselves. Keep, keep rubbing up your actions, keep looking at what you're doing and how you're thinking and seeing you know, where is sin, where is it hiding, where is it lurking, where is it flaring up. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote something in the 1870s that I think could have passed as an expose of our times. Uh, he saw in his generation that uh, there was a, a reduced interest in godliness, in, in living out practical godliness. Uh, he said that Christ-like charity and kindness and good temper, unselfishness, self-denial, gentleness, zeal for doing good, separation from this world, he thought they were all less appreciated in his time than they were in, the, in his father's. And he wondered if, this is writing in 1870, uh, the vast increase of wealth in the last 25 years has insensibly introduced a plague of worldliness and self-indulgence and a love of ease into social life. Luxuries are now necessaries. Self-denial is consequently little known. Sounds a little modern, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, his concern was that holiness standards had dropped in his generation and it seems to me a fairly contemporary challenge about how seriously we take our sin. You know, we watch TV and films uh, that previous generations would walk at. Uh, we're looser with alcohol than most in our tradition have been. Uh, we're comfortable with massive consumption and spending on leisure in a way that um, at least my parents and grandparents weren't. You know, complaining and cursing and swearing, you know, they often go unchecked. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a great thing. Maybe we're just not slaves to legalism anymore. Uh, but maybe it's just we don't question our culture and habits. We don't see the, cling, the, the sin that is clinging and trying to drag us back. Maybe there's been a drop in passion for holiness. Maybe we aren't worried about what might entangle us. Maybe we just don't even notice it. The second way to live out faith Obey without expecting a payoff here and now. That's the example of Christ uh, and the example of other greats like Abraham. I want you to turn to um, eleven, and we'll pick chapter eleven. Pick it up at verse eight. It's just the bottom of uh, the page before. If you're, you're there, um, I want us to look at the example of Abraham. Uh, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he'd later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he's going. <laughs> 
by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he's past age, Sarah herself barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they are longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Abraham gave up everything. He gave up his homeland uh, to head to a place that God promised him. Uh, The trouble was it was already possessed by another nation. Uh, He left his own kinsmen and his family, his closest ties, with the promise of establishing his own family, even though he was old uh, and as good as dead and his wife barren. Oh, yeah, after time they did have one son, but, but it was years after hearing the word of God and obeying. Years. And even then, it wasn't with all the kind of glory <laughs> that seemed to be held out. That, that, was, that was for heaven, and that's the point. You know, people of faith obey without a quick payoff. They scorn shame for the joy of heaven. You know, faith will not stop you losing your job. It won't stop us having failed relationships. It won't stop us burying our partners and our children. It won't stop us being overlooked for promotions. It It won't stop us having our savings lost in a financial crisis. That's not what faith does. Uh, When my grandfather died in his early 60s, someone at uh, at my church uh, told my mother, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Yeah, uh, you know, they were profoundly wrong at lots of levels, weren't they? You know, they were wrong just because it was, you know, to think that that was in any way comforting or loving was wrong in the first place. Uh, But even more deeply, they they were wrong because they... They misunderstood the nature of faith. They'd bought into a lie that was sold in a certain brand of Christianity. Uh, That faith means success and triumph here. That's a lie. Faith obeys without expecting the payoffs in this life. Yeah, you might get some good payoffs, but that's that's not faith. That's God's kindness and blessing. What is faith? Faith scorns shame for the joy yet to come. Now Moses did the same. Look down at verse 24. By faith... Moses, when, he grown, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Forsaking comfort, security, earthly ambition. You know, Moses, Moses didn't, you may know him famously as leading the people out of, uh, of Egypt, but he actually never made it to the promised land. He died on the edge. Now, don't mishear me. Um, faith is not a call you need to drop out of the world and join a monastery. That would be a massive misunderstanding. No, it's not about disengagement from the world. It's about a different engagement with the world. You know, Abraham and Moses still operated inside the world, but they operated in a way to build heavenly treasure rather than get a payoff now. That's scorning shame for joy. You know, 
we get to see it all the time, don't we? We get to see faith in action all the time. We see it here at church. You know, there are highly trained city professionals out there with our kids in crash. You know, we see people uh, cleaning up books and scraps of paper at the end of the church. Oh, it's small and trivial. You know, we, we, we see it in family life. Um, to Ephraim Stoltzfus, again, uh, talked about how uh, before as a Christian, he thought three or four children would be enough. And now he says he asks the Lord to give me a big quiver full of arrows, that is children, uh, perhaps as many as 10 or 12 children to raise up to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the only Christian family life is to have as many as possible. Um, I'm sure Anna is relieved to hear me say that. Uh, but but what I, what, what, what's valuable about him is here is a man who is engaging in the realities of the world with an eternal perspective. And so he's, he's doing the same thing as everyone, but with a different attitude and a different way. You know, we see it at work when, when Christians work with integrity uh, rather than in a scheming way to get the promotion. Because uh, what do they want? They want Christ honoured in all they do. Uh, they're working not for the pay packet, not for the salary, but for heavenly rewards and treasure there. You know, faith doesn't disengage us from the world, but we engage more intently to do good because we long for heaven to come and for God's good rewards. You know, like Abraham who obeyed God, why? That the world might be blessed through him. The world might be blessed through him. Like Moses who turned his back on sin and comfort so that his people would have the benefit. Like Christ who scorned the, the shame of the cross for joy. It's the faithful. It's we of faith who should actually be the leaders when it comes to ethical action. Because we're the ones who are willing to receive the flack now and challenge the status quo to achieve good things. You know, perhaps the biggest challenge Hebrews throws down to us today uh, is about materialism and how at home you and I feel in this world. You know, in the early centuries, the Christians uh, read a work called The Shepherd of Hermas. Here's a sample. Um, As the servants of God, your city is far from this city. If you then know the city in which you're going to dwell, why do you prepare lands and costly establishments? Take heed then. Make no further preparations for yourself beyond a sufficient competence for yourself as though you were living in a foreign country. It's departure land logic. Is he right? Is, is, this, is this obedience that doesn't expect a payoff here and now? And if he is right, what's it going to look like for you and me? There's your morning tea over coffee conversation. Now, in all honesty, do you think that faith that really looks like self-contented affluence will ever make the kind of impact that faith that looks like outgoing compassion will? Now, what are we to make of um, Ephraim and Amanda Stoltzfus? Uh, the same we make of Abraham and Moses and countless others over the years, and many of you probably know, people of faith, people who copy Christ and scorn shame for joy. And may that be us. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we ask that you would work powerfully in us and our lives, that we would be people who copy Christ, uh, regardless of the price, that we would look to heavenly, heavenly rewards as Christ did. Uh, Father, make us people who long for the city to come, that we would be people who live faith even now. And we ask for your strength to help us to see the sin that entangles and your spirit's strength to overcome them, that we might endure to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen.